My name's Tom. I'm an elder here. I'm, I'm not the regular pastor. He was on vacation this week and camping, and, and he's, he's here with us today with his wife, Christine, but we wanted him to focus on family on vacation, so um, he's just going to sit back and, and worship today. So I'm going to start with some show and tell, some show and tell. So this, and I know you can't see it exactly from where you are, but you can get the idea, and online as well. This is the Tune COVID-19 Family Game Night photo album. So when this mess started back in March, and Jackson had to stop going to Penn State Harrisburg for classes, and Diane had to come home from Millersville, we were together every night for supper. And Mrs. Toon, being the wonderful wife and mother that she is, said, we're going to start a new tradition. Every night after supper, we're going to have a family game night, a family game night. And at the end of each game, we would take a picture and send it to some other family members. And then without me knowing, my wonderful wife turned it into this photo album and gave it to me on Father's Day, right? Isn't she sweet? Isn't she sweet? So, but I got a confession to make. I do not like board games. (laughs) And the more rules they have and the more strategies they have, the less I like them. But I do like family time. And so I participated every night. And, and every night at the end, like I said, we'd take the uh, selfie, which was an event in itself because Dad took the selfie. So every single night, folks, for two months that we did this, it went something like this. You're holding it the wrong way, Dad. You've got to turn it around so you can see us, Dad. Your finger's in the picture, Dad, every single night, over and over again. But somehow... We made it through. So we each had a responsibility. It rotated among the four of us to come up with the game. So those guys are really into it, and they're coming up with strategic games and rules and everything. But when it was my turn, I tried to do what Tom might enjoy. And so I have, let me share this one, the best game ever created by man. Trouble, trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, the Pop-O-Matic. That is the sound of freedom right there. Okay. You get a one, you get a six, you move your guy, end of rules. Okay? And it's just sort of dumb luck as you go around. And that's, this is Tom's favorite game. Um, Jackson particularly would get very creative. He thought of a game they used to do in school, and so we all had our laptop, and he gave us a prompt and we had three minutes to type a, a little intro to this story. And then after three minutes, we passed our laptop to the next person. And they added to the story. And then the next person and the next person. And then we read it at the end for some very interesting stories, I might add. Okay, that was way above Tom's level. So Tom thought, well, what did I do when I was in school? What did I do in study hall? Anybody? Anybody? Paper, football. And you slide it back and forth across the table. And if the edge is halfway over, you score a point. And, if you, and then if you score a point, the other person goes like this. And you get to kick a field goal. Yes. That tells you a lot about me, doesn't it, right there? And then one night, Diane came down with the game from her bedroom. She didn't even know we had it. Of course, if you've ever been to Diane's bedroom... There's lots of things up there that we have no idea that we have. Uh, uh, You know, yesterday Debbie came down with Halloween candy. So anyhow, uh, 
Diane found this game called Blurt. Blurt. And this game had very few rules and very few strategies. They would just give a definition of something, and you yelled out the answer. So this is Tom's love language. No rules, no strategy, no verbal filters. Just shout it out. So they're quietly reading the rules, and they would say a partially... uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Partially drained uh, grape. Raisin, 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 raisin. I'm shouting raisin. And they're going, yeah, okay, Dad, okay, settle down. You got it, you got it. Then they go to the next question. And they're calmly reading a thin strip of leather that you would wear around your belt, 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 belt. And I'm screaming out belt, raising my hand too. I have no idea why, but just shouting out. Folks, I dominated Blurt. I, I blew my family away in Blurt. Because it required no verbal filters. Um, and that's something I struggle with, saying things without really thinking about them. Now, my wife, who loves me so much, tries to explain a lot of it away by saying, oh, that's chemo brain from when I was sick a few years ago. But you know what? It's been six years since I've been in remission, and it's more like just lazy brain and Tom not wanting to think before he talks. And so I'm wondering if anyone else here has ever taken a joke too far or told a story too far or not been able to control your thoughts or your actions. I struggle with it. I've struggled with it for a long time. When I was a young boy in school, this is what the teachers used to say to me. Tommy, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Isn't that clever? Isn't that clever? Check yourself, Tommy, before you wreck yourself. Because I was impulsive. I just wouldn't think. I would just say things. I would do things. I wouldn't control things. When I became a teenager, my dad had a favorite TV show that would make him laugh hysterically. He loved watching uh, All in the Family. And when Archie Bunker would say to his wife, Edith, stifle yourself. He just thought that was hilarious. And he would say a similar comment to me. Tommy, he didn't call me Tommy. Tom, stifle yourself. Slow down. Get control. Um, And just a point of clarification here. He portrayed a bigoted racist guy, and I agreed with none of his positions. And they displayed him in in a humorous way that made his perspective look ridiculous. But he sure did make my dad laugh. Then I became uh, married, and we had our first child, and I guess my discipline wasn't maybe what it should be, because when I hung out with other relatives who had younger kids, and they would watch my interactions with my firstborn, they would say this to me, Tom, you better pull in the reins, because that one's a wild one right there. And we could go into more stories, but that's unlike me to do that, so we won't do that, but pull in the reins. And then finally... When I began working in the education field, I would hear some teachers say this, or I'd see some parents do that, and I jumped to all these false conclusions until a colleague said to me, whoa, Tom, pump the brakes, pump the brakes. So looking at all four of these expressions in a row, check yourself, stifle yourself, pull in the reins, pump the brakes, they all have to do with restraint. And this is what the Lord's been laying on me the past few weeks, if not longer, is restraint, to control oneself. Now, I don't want to get in a battle of semantics here. Some of you might be saying, well, that's self-control. You know, call it what you want. I'm, I'm just using restraint 
because self-control begins with the word self, and Tom couldn't do it by himself. To me, restraint implies someone put something on you that at first maybe you didn't like, but in the long run you realize it was for your benefit. And so that's why I, I went with restraint. And again, this restraint can come in all sorts of different areas. It can be in your thought life, you know. Are you consumed with wishing you had more money, with wishing you'd win the lottery? Are you consumed with jealousy about a coworker? Are you uh, envious of a relative? Or maybe it's about behaviors. Are you an incessant gossip and you just can't close your mouth sometimes and have to give your opinion? Are you addicted to drugs? Are you addicted to technology? Are you addicted to food? Or maybe you have uh, behaviors that restrain you from doing what you should be doing, like a daily quiet time or sharing the gospel or giving to the church. So that's what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes. I know it applies to me. Hopefully it'll be benefit you as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to focus here for just a couple quick minutes. As we look at a biblical example of what restraint looks like, and as we look at what restraint is and, and what it isn't, and, and how it's a gift from you, and you give it to us so that we can use it to better glorify you because you are worthy. So clear away all the distractions. Help us focus here for just a couple minutes for your glory and your edification. And everybody said? Amen. 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 So the biblical example I'm going to use for you is David from the Bible. David from the Bible. Now, he's one of the most referenced, I don't want to say characters, because that makes it sound like it's a story, but because the Bible we know is active and living. He was a real man who went through these real things And I'm going to give you a condensed life history of David in like 30 seconds, okay? So David was born. David had a pure heart. He was a young shepherd. Initially, he was known for his great musical talent. As a teenager, he really loved the Lord. And while all these men were afraid, he stepped in front of them and took a slingshot and slayed the Philistine giant Goliath. King Saul of Israel favored David, welcomed him into his court. David became the friend of King Saul's son, uh, Jonathan, his best friend, as a matter of fact. Later on in battle, when Saul and Jonathan were killed, David became king. He captured Jerusalem. He brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He helped establish that great nation that was started by Abraham. Then, sadly, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and in trying to cover up that sin, ordered the death of her husband. He repented of this with a broken heart. God accepted his repentance, but denied him the uh, opportunity to build the temple. Uh, uh, David had a son named Absalom who usurped his throne and then tried to kill his dad. Absalom eventually died. David became king again. He had another son named Solomon who he uh, anointed as his heir, and Solomon built the temple. If there was one sentence that sums up David's life, you guys all know this. He was a man after a man after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. So that's the David we're going to look at for just a couple minutes. Okay. so the part of his life story that I want to emphasize is his relationship with Saul, King Saul, his relationship with King Saul. So initially, Saul loved David, invited him into court. They went out to battle together and everything was fine. 
And the Lord was with them and with Saul. But then when they'd come back from these battles and they'd come into town and all the people were cheering, some were on the ramparts looking down, some were on the ground and they're cheering, they'd say, here comes Saul. He killed his thousands. And Saul loved that boy. He loved that. And then they'd say, and here comes David who killed his tens of thousands. Saul got jealous. Saul got crazy jealous, irrational jealous. And the more it went on, the more irrational he got. One time he called David into his courtroom and just looking at him, he was just filled with rage. And Saul picked up his spear and winged it with all his might at David. David being young, agile, and more importantly, the Lord being with him, ducked and it into the door and shook like that. And David, being the smart man he is, said, I better get out of here for a while until he calms down. And so David flee to the countryside. But Saul pursued him for not one year, not two, not four, six, or eight, for a decade, folks. For 10 years, David was a wanted man, sleeping in dark, dank, musty caves, hiding among the rocks, trying to escape the wrath of this man that he loved for 10 years. In 1 Samuel 23, Saul almost got him. He was just about to get him. But you see, Saul, in his obsession for getting David, was neglecting, protecting the rest of Jerusalem. And so just when he's about to get David, some messengers come and said, Saul, for Pete's sakes, we need you back here. We're being attacked by the Philistines. So I'm fine. And he went back and he took care of that and defeated the Philistines. But then guess what? In 1 Samuel 24, right back to chasing David. Right back to chasing David. So that's one of the two passages we're going to look at today. I'm in 1 Samuel 24. You may either open your Bible or your, de- your device, or it'll be on the screen right above you here. Okay? So here we go. 1 Samuel 24. We're going to read 1 through 7. 1 through 7. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. I'll explain that in a minute. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up on notice and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Okay, what in the world's happening here? Saul's chasing them down. They're in a part of the desert called En Gedi. I was blessed beyond compare to make a trip to Israel a few years ago. And guess where we went? to En Gedi. And we went up in the very mountains where Saul was chasing David. Rocks everywhere, except where there was a wadi, a, a river stream. Then it was green. 
But other than that, it was nothing but shades of brown, sharp rocks with these weird little animals that at first you'd never see. And then all of a sudden, there's one, there's one, there's one. The wild goats that it talked about, they're called ibexes, I-B-E-X, ibex, and they were beautiful. So here comes Saul with how many men? 3,000. And David has 300. Now, David's wily. He's been on his, on his run for his life for many years now. His scouts see Saul coming. So they go to the deepest cave they can find and go as far back in the cave as they can. 300 men. Saul happens to be going by, happens to be going by, and goes in the cave to... Don't you love how the Bible is real? Right? He went in the cave to go to the bathroom, folks. He was a real man just like you and me, and he had to go. So he went in the cave to go to the bathroom. Now... I don't know this for sure, but I'm thinking not all 300 men were in the very back, that he probably had some scouts along the way, and they noticed Saul walking in and couldn't believe that King Saul was right there, unprotected by his 3,000 men. So they go and tell David, he's right here, and they say, this is the day the Lord talked about where he delivers them into your hand, except guess what? The Lord never said that. The Lord never said that. The men just made that up because guess what? They wanted this to be over with too. Because there's 300 faithful men, they've been running for 10 years. So you can imagine that the temptation to kill Saul was almost overpowering. And David sneaks up on him and cuts off a corner of his robe and lets him go. And a little bit later on, when there's a little bit of distance between them, David confronts Saul. Now, when I say a little bit of a distance, when we were in the mountains of En Gedi, I could be here and uh, Saul could be where uh, Joe Fogg is, that far apart. You know, I can almost see the color of his eyes. But guess what? There are ravines between us that are hundreds of feet deep. And for me to get to Joe would take half a day because I'd have to go all the way down the mountain and around or all the way up the mountain and over. So that's how they could hear each other. And they get that close, and David says, Look what I could have done to you. Look what I could have done, but I love you. I'm asserting my loyalty to you. And Saul repents, and he cries, and everything seems okay, but it's not. Because a short time later, Saul's going to chase him down again. But again, David is wily. David has scouts out. So David goes even higher into the En Gedi Mountains. And this time the 3,000 men come in and they settle right in the valley in the middle of the heights. A very poor position to be in. And the scouts see this and they go and tell David and they say, we can sneak in there tonight and get him. So David says, I need one person to come with me. And he chooses a guy named Abishai, who is his right hand man, his best fighter, the most skilled guy in hand to hand combat. And this is what happens Let's look at 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26, beginning in verse 7. So David and Abishai, they went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner, Abner was Saul's right-hand man. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, 
Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. And instead, he just tells him to grab his spear and grab his water jug and let's go. Talk about restraint. This is twice now. This is twice now where he had a chance. Now, a spear and water jug are two of the most prized possessions a man could have in the desert. And so the next day, he confronts them again, just like this. Now, initially, it starts off with David talking to Abner, his right-hand man. And before we think of David as, you know, all great and holy, David does a little smack talk to Abner, right? Hey, Abner, great job protecting. Look what I have. And Abner is furious. Can't believe he was standing over his leader. And can't you just picture um, uh, David and, and Abishai having this hushed argument with each other? Just let, me, just let me do it once. I won't need to do it twice. You know why he said that, right? He was an excellent. One time, and it, you won't need two strikes. Just once, and it'll be over with. And David's, no, no. Take his jug, take his spear, and we leave. So again, here we have this great man of God showing restraint, showing restraint, who had been chased for 10 years. Now, you're wondering, okay, that, that's great restraint, Tom. How does that apply to me? Uh, there's some people that I'm upset with, but I don't want to kill them, okay? But what, what if you had a, a life VCR, and you could hit the stop button for something that would never happen, your childhood nemesis, the coworker who drives you crazy, the relative you can't get along with, would you press that stop button if you could? Or would you, thinking that you know better than God, or would you show restraint? Would you let God be with you through the trial? Would you trust him completely? And there can be lack of restraint, like I said, in many areas of your life, guys. Um, and again, in your thought life, always wishing you had more money, addicted to pornography, always seeking revenge, or maybe it's verbal opinions. You know, you just can't stop talking. And maybe, I don't know, it could be on social media where, where you think you just have to give your opinion on everything. I, I have an acquaintance who, who put some strong things on, on social media and guess what? <gasps> Three people disagreed. And so my friend said, that's it, I'm, I'm done with, fa- I'm, I'm not doing Facebook anymore. And to which one of her friends responded, oh, don't do that, honey. If you do that, they win. Well, who is they? There are 394 million people in the United States. The four people you're arguing with on Facebook are not they. Maybe you're addicted to technology, young people. Must you sleep with your phone? Must it be the last thing your eyes see at night? Must it be the first thing you look at in the morning? Or do you not, are you not able to um, restrain yourself from doing that? So grab your outline if you have one, please. Please grab your outline. And let's quickly look at some, some um, godly uh, guidelines for restraint. Number one, number, your first fill in there is restraint is not weakness. Restraint is not weakness. Is there anyone here who's willing to call King David weak? Right? A teenager who killed Goliath? Someone who survived on the run for 10 years? You're going to call him weak? I'm not. Showing restraint is actually a strength. 
a strength. You tell me, what takes more strength, to let every thought, action, pass out of your mouth unfiltered, or to be able to, mm, and take those thoughts captive instead of saying them? You all know this verse. 2 Corinthians 10, 5b, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do we do that? Do you take your thoughts captive? Do you know how you do that? You replace the way you think, and you fill yourself more with God's Word and Christian music instead of social media or gossip at work or, or those obsessive thoughts of, in sexual pictures. You replace that with these things, and in time, this becomes your default. This becomes your go-to. This helps you take those thoughts captive. But you got to work at it. You got to work at it. Number two, number two, restraint is not silence. Restraint is not silence. God asks us to measure our words, not to eliminate them. Okay? So if someone makes a baseless claim about your God or your church or spiritual leader or one of your own family members, you shouldn't just sit there in silence. That's, that's not restraint. That's, that's cowardly. If God gives you the opportunity to witness to a neighbor, and that neighbor is practically begging you, how do you do this? Tell me why you seem so calm. Tell me where do you get that inner peace? And you don't say anything. You remain silent. That's, that's not restraint. That's fear. That's sin. We are to use our words. We are to talk, but we're to do it in a way that glorify God. The other day, I was helping an older man, not a member of our church, here at this church, do some things, loading a lot of boxes, and, and he kind of gave a lot of his opinions on masks and whether we should or shouldn't and, and, and what COVID is or isn't. And he went on and on, and I knew he was just loving me to get in a conversation on this, but I wasn't going to change his mind, and he wasn't going to change mine. And so, you know, I, I, when he finally took a breath, I said, you know, it, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. And, and our church walks a fine line between, you know, adhering to the government authorities God allowed to be in place and not being willfully disobedient. It's, it's a challenge. That's all I said. Discussion was over. You folks, you can have opinions. Of course you can have opinions. Hopefully they're godly opinions, but just temper them. Temper them and understand that you're trying to point your audience towards Christ. Let's look at this next verse. Set a guard over your mouth. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips, right? So it doesn't set, set a seal over my mouth, but just put a guard. Help me to think even better yet. Help me to pray before I speak, before I speak, okay? So restraint is not silence. So we looked at a couple things of what restraint is not. Let's look at a couple things of what restraint is. Number three, restraint is God-given and God-honoring. God-given and God-honoring. God gives us many, many things to help promote restraint in our life that honors Him. I'm just going to highlight two. We could probably think of many, many, many. Let's look at these verses. Galatians 5, 22, 23. You guys know it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Genesis 2.24 That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So what are two things that God gives us to help us with restraint? First of all, He gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives us all those wonderful gifts. And the reason he gives us all those wonderful gifts is because the Holy Spirit wants Tom and he wants you to grow up and to be spiritually mature. Striving for spiritual maturity. And you do that through restraint. Through restraint. And then finally, one of the biggest temptations, men or women, are sexual temptations. And so God gave us a boundary for that. A man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife. God gives us those boundaries to aid us in restraint. And then he tells children, submit to your parents and and wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, submit to God. And and that submission doesn't mean, oh, whatever you say I'm going to do. Submission just means to fill your role. Fill the role that God has outlined for you. These are two restraints that if we follow these things, we will be spiritually mature and have a greater impact for the lost, for the lost. And then last one, your fill-ins, restraint is necessary. It is necessary spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and physically. Now, hang on to your pens, because if you want, there's two more things you might want to write down. But restraint is necessary, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So why is restraint restraint necessary spiritually? So that you're a more effective witness for God. So that you can glorify Him and be a more effective witness. You don't have a slide for this, but this is Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So the things you can control, control. And you can control your thoughts and actions through God. And that makes you a better witness to other people. It also gives you an opportunity to share the gospel. Restraint helps you to know how much to say and what not to say. Just like restraint plays a role in the lost person, helping them understand that they need to have restraints. They need to ask for forgiveness for their sins. So it's necessary spiritually. Uh, you know, remember, that, of course, there's a pandemic of, of coronavirus right now, but there's also a pandemic of lostness. But guess what? We have the vaccine. It's Jesus Christ. You guys are the doctors. You have the vaccine. You can save the world, or at least your corner of it, by praying for opportunities, asking for wisdom to see them, and the courage to take them. Second one, why... Uh, Why is um, restraint necessary emotionally? Because it reduces triggers in your life. It reduces... Triggers are things that set us off. Now, you don't have this one either. Let me read Ecclesiastes 21 and 22. Do not pay any attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. If I can paraphrase, paraphrase that, it might sound something like this. Don't pay attention to every word people say because you've said a lot of dumb stuff too. Okay? Reduce the triggers in your life. So what if that person's about opinion about coronavirus or masks differs from you? So what? Try to get to their heart and share Jesus Christ. That'll last long past this. 
um, new normal. And finally, why is restraint necessary physically? Just for your own personal health. For your own personal health. You need to have restraints on your laziness. You need to exercise and take care of the body that God has given to you. You need to have restraints on your diet. You need to have restraints on your sleep. What does Tom struggle with? Going to bed on time, right? I've convinced myself I get a second wind at 1030 at night. And so I stay up a little longer watching this useless thing and this useless thing. Last night, forced myself to go to bed. Oh, heaven, I had one of the best nights sleep ever. Imagine that. All right? Restraints. Restraints. So you can keep this fragile, clay-filled temple working and serve him longer. Two final thoughts. Two final thoughts. If you want to write down, you don't have to. You don't have to. Number one, you cannot show true restraint if you don't know Christ. You cannot show true restraint if you don't know Christ. You may think you can get your addictions under control. You may think you can get your tongue under control. You may think you can get your thoughts under control, but you can't. But you can't. If you have not admitted that you are a sinner and turned from your sins and asked Christ into your heart as your Savior and Lord, and know that he died on the cross for you, and that by accepting him, you can live in heaven eternally and have him here now on earth with the Holy Spirit, you're never going to win against restraint. You have to be a believer. If you're here today or you're watching online, and you don't know what that means, what Tom just talked about, accepting Christ, please contact the church through the website. See me or Pastor John or or anyone afterwards that that is a maturing believer, and, and they'll they'll share some good news that'll change your life forever. Otherwise, you'll never get your restraint. If you're sitting here today saying, he's right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to fix that today. But you haven't accepted Christ, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And number two, you cannot show restraint if you self-isolate yourself from God. You cannot show restraint if you self-isolate yourself from God. Now, self-isolate, oh, Tom's getting political now. No, no, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. I am thrilled that you're here today, but for those that are here, if this is the extent of your time with God for the week, it's not enough. For those who have joined us online, praise God, thank you, I am glad you're here, but this is the extent of filling yourself with God's word for the rest of the week. You are self-isolating, quarantine virus or not, you are self-isolating. Folks, you have to do more than just Sunday morning. You have to do more to conquer restraint than just be a Sunday morning person, either here or online. And if you have concerns about coming in, God bless you. I get it. But guess what? We have women's studies and men's studies online. We have youth and children's studies online. We're going to have a VBS online. You should be in an accountability relationship with somebody, either in person or online. I'm so messed up, I have three accountability partners. (laughs) That's what it takes for me to work on my restraint. If you don't surround yourself with God's Word and fellow Christians, like-minded Christians, and accountability, 
you won't be able to restrain yourself. The last slide I want to share with you today. Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no revelation, and what that revelation means is preaching of God's words, sharing of God's words, Christian fellowship, accountability. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. That's a beautiful verse that summarizes this short, uh, well, maybe it wasn't that short, but summarizes this sermon, right? If you're not spending time in God's Word, if you're not involved with either online or in-person Bible study, if you don't have an accountability partner, you're going to cast off restraint, and you're going to do what you want to do. Instead, I'm asking you to be involved, and not forget Tom, God's asking you to be involved, to worship Him, and to do what He says. Amen?